as you remember, there was something akin to an ecclesiastical autoimmune disease in the church of Corinth. And the church was uh, attacking itself from the inside and eating itself from the inside out. And of course we know that uh, such a thing will eventually destroy a human body and, and such is the case with a church. And so Paul begins the body of his letter in chapter 1 verse 10 with this appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And this is the Word of God to us. Let's pray and ask that He'll help us. Father, we do need Your help. It's easy to see what is written. It's easy to read it. It's easy to understand it. It's easy to affirm it. It's easy to confess it. It is absolutely impossible in our nature to do what it says. And so we ask that you would overcome our uh, sinful proclivities toward uh, selfishness and self-centeredness, individualism, uh, and that you would continue to work in us those graces of Patience, or long-suffering, tenderness, love and compassion toward one another. Appreciation and gratitude for the, the very existence of a, of a church. Lord, work that in us. Help us, Lord, as we hear from Your Word, to love it once again. To be just perhaps in a, in a fresh way captivated with the simplicity and clarity of what Your Word says. But Lord, most of all, we need application. We need the gift of the Holy Spirit to come and to write it upon our hearts, uh, that it would change us, that we would leave here differently than we were when we got here. Please help us. We ask all of this again in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of God, and thus God Himself, Never, and you can check me on this this afternoon, the Word of God never promotes that which is sinful, detrimental, or destructive. God in His Word only ever promotes that which is righteous, edifying, and life-giving. God never prohibits, He never prohibits or puts any uh, forbidding on that which is good or helpful or godly. Throughout His Word, we only ever find Him prohibiting that which is harmful or disastrous, sinful. I think it's pretty simple. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not, but that's a pretty simple thing that you'll find as you read God's Word. God fully opposes that which is sinful and ruinous to our souls. Fully opposes it with all that He is, but at the same time, He fully gives Himself to that which is profitable to our souls. Fully against the one, fully for the other. 
And we don't see that anywhere uh, more clearly than we see it in what we call the gospel. God's act or acting in the gospel. We know that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Death, not good. Death is bad. Sin is bad. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. None is righteous, no, not one. Everyone who does wicked things does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. His works are evil. Whoever does not believe is condemned, headed for destruction. We know that from Scripture. Those are clear, simple truths. Right this very moment, right now, if you're not a Christian, you are condemned. It's already happened. The condemnation is already upon your head. A lot of times we think, well, well I'll get to the judgment day and, and then we'll find out. No, it's already, it's already done. You're already condemned. You stand condemned this very moment before God because of your sin. But we also know that the love of God has been made manifest among us in that He sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. See, there's life. Sin... Death, God's against it. He, he, he will, with all that is in Him, for all of eternity, oppose sin. But, here we see, He's fully given Himself and manifested His own love, which is His own self, that we might live. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus Christ, him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And therefore He has procured for us, He has secured an eternal redemption... Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And when He appears, we'll be like Him, because we'll see Him as He is. From that point on, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. God's going to do away with it. That's how much He's against it. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. We will enter into the eternal joy of our Master and we will sit down at His table and He will gird Himself and serve us. And we will dine with Him. Through Christ Jesus, God freed us from the penalty and power of sin which would have destroyed us. He's against that which is destructive. He's against that which is ruinous. In Christ, He frees us from that which would have destroyed us and He brings us to Himself so that He might renew us day by day and someday glorify us in His presence with eternal life. He's fully given to that plan, that program. All of God is all for that program. Save the sinners. Bring them from death to life. 
put them and glorify them in my presence forever. He is against sin. He's for righteousness and life. God hates sin. God loves righteousness and goodness and peace and life. He only ever promotes that which is righteous, edifying, life-giving to us. God would never prescribe for us anything that would be ruinous to our souls. He never does. Now what we've been studying in recent weeks, or what we've, we've seen, is that God promotes unity among the saints in the local church. He promotes that. He doesn't forbid it. He promotes it. Therefore, we, we would conclude, I think, that unity is good and righteous and edifying. It's life-giving. It's godly. It's profitable for our souls. When we give ourselves to pursue this, it is for our own benefit. God wants our good, not our harm, our good. And that's why He prescribes these things. This week I finished reading again Thomas Wilcox's book on... It's called A Choice Drop of Honey from the Rock of Christ. It's like, it's not long at all. It's super short. Somebody put forth the effort of putting it and making it look kind of like a book, but it's more like a pamphlet at best. But I've read it, and I, I, I just read it constantly over and over and over. But the very last thing he says in that book, and, and Chapel Library's got it for free, by the way. Uh, the very last thing he says, he draw everything he has said is all about turning away from your own righteousness and just looking to Christ. That's the whole point of the book. Stop trying to do this yourself. You can't. You'll fail. It's an abomination. Just look to Him. Throw everything on Him. Over. He just says that over and over and over again. But he brings it all to this conclusion. This is the last thing he says. You who have seen Christ as all and yourself as absolutely nothing, who make Christ all your life and are dead to all righteousness besides, you are a true Christian. One highly beloved and who has found favor with God, a favorite of heaven. And here's his application. For all His love and favor to you, love all His poor saints and churches. The most despised, the smallest, the weakest, notwithstanding any difference in little matters, they are engraved on His heart as the names of the children of Israel on Aaron's breastplate. Let them be so on yours. In other words, he draws all of this to this conclusion. If... If you believe this, if you're a Christian, then it only makes sense to then turn to other saints and pour out yourself and love them as Christ has loved you. God is good. The gospel is good. Salvation is good. And, and unity as a fruit of those things is itself good. It's a good thing. So we come this week to consider the third way in which God's Word bears an emphatic witness to this theme of unity. And what I called it several weeks ago was the denunciation of alternatives. Or, you, or I'll use the word opposites. How severely is the opposite of unity spoken against? And I use this illustration from God's law. We, we learn things, we, we learn about what God loves by watching how He treats what He hates. 
the example was this. You, you've got an ox. Otherwise, normal ox never gave you any trouble, never been a problem. It breaks out and gores someone to death. There's a dead body laying on the ground. The owner runs up. There's the owner. There's the ox. There's the dead body. The owner is not liable. Now, if that ox had been known to gore people and he had not put it away, had not taken the effort to secure it, well, he's in big trouble. But in this instance, the owner is not held liable for what that ox had, had done. The flip side of that would be if a daughter was found to be promiscuous while living in her father's home, she was brought to her father's doorstep and stoned to death right there. Nobody died with what she did. And yet the penalty for her is death on her father's doorstep. That helps us to see not only how much God hates sexual immorality, but how much He loves purity and marital fidelity and, and the institution of marriage itself. You see how I did that? The way He treats the opposite shows us how much He loves the, the, the godly or the, the righteous path, what He prescribes. So that's my, my logic. If we take note of the way that God addresses the opposite of unity, well, that also will show us how highly He commends it to us Himself, how, how much He loves it. So we would ask now questions like this. What does God say about disunity? What does God say about discord? What does God say about divisions? How does God view an individual who's not willing to make the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony one of their primary and consistent labors? What does God say about this? So what I want to do this week, just like we did last week, is walk through several passages of Scripture. This time we have six. I narrowed it down and trimmed some off for the sake of time. Just six. And we're going to ask three questions. What is being denounced in this passage? How does this relate to the theme of unity that we're talking about? And what does this teach us about the alternatives or the opposite of unity? Maybe you've already decided, I'm not for this. You can preach as many sermons on it as you want to. I'm not doing it. Well, let's just see how, what God says about that type of attitude. So the first one is found in Deuteronomy chapter 12. So turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 12. And I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. We'll, we'll, I'll reference some others, so if you're able to hold a Bible, keep it open. Verses 8 and 9. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, the context of this passage, I think to summarize it up in one word, is worship. That's what Moses is getting at here is the theme of worship. The children of Israel have not yet entered into and taken possession of the promised land. So there were certain laws with regard to worship, specifically the location of where it was to take place, that weren't quite so fixed and settled as they would someday be, if that makes sense. Uh, they, they, uh, they have not yet taken possession of Zion. They have not yet built the temple. Uh, that, that place as a, as a location on planet earth has not yet been established 
This is prior to that. They were worshiping prior to all of that, but things are going to change. Now, what is denounced in this passage? You shall not do, according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. So their current practice, the way that they were doing it, is denounced or prohibited. They were not allowed to go on worshiping in that way anymore, whatever that way might be. Rather, and you can see in verses 5 to 7, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put His name and make His habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, etc. Verse 7, there you shall eat before the Lord your God. You see, the issue was about the soon-to-be-settled location of worship in the promised land. In verse 11, to that place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name to dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. Verse 11, verses 13 and 14, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose out of one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Prior to their being settled in the promised land, there was not settled, or there was not a settled and established location for offering their sacrifices. Now, there was the tabernacle that had to be set up and tore down and set up and tore down. And when you read commentators about this, they, they talk about you know the times when maybe they were traveling and the tabernacle wasn't fully set up, but somebody wanted to offer a sacrifice or something of that nature, and, and they would just kind of go about as they pleased. But the tabernacle was mobile. That This concept of a fixed place on earth was, was not yet established. In addition to that, we know that the other nations of the, the land of Canaan, they offered sacrifices pretty much on any high place they could find, many different places, and, and that practice, or at least that idea, may have begun to infiltrate or would potentially infiltrate the minds of the nation of Israel. And, and what, what God is saying through Moses here is, that's not how we do things. We, we don't do it like them, and we're not even going to keep doing it like we've been doing it. We're going to do it in a certain way. Now, as to this language, what's being prohibited, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, one commentary says, quote, The phrase is applied to actions performed according to a man's own judgment rather than according to the standard of objective right and the law of God. That's what's being prohibited here. Now that the more established and settled form of worship would be set up in the promised land, it's prohibited that everyone would just decide in his own mind when and where and how. Things are going to change. Now how does this apply to unity? Well, let's try to draw a parallel between Old Covenant community, New Covenant community, and how this might fold over, I guess you could say, into our, our present circumstance. And we don't have time to to fully unpack it. But remember, the, the unity that we're talking about is corporate. It, it deals with the church as a body, the covenant community as a body. And it's also doctrinal and practical, which means it deals with objective truth from Scripture as well as clear and unambiguous teaching on godliness and, and practical living. In other words, the unity that we've been talking about 
has to do with the covenant community of God's people precisely as we are that covenant community brought together by God's Spirit and united around uh, central points of doctrine and practice. It's, it's the community of the people of God as a community, united. Where God has clearly given these types of standards, whether it's doctrine or practice, the responsibility for attaining to and maintaining subscription to these standards applies to the whole community as individuals, parts of the community or the whole community made up of individuals. Everyone is beholden to observe that which God has clearly set forth as the prescription. I guess the way to make this sound more simple is when we talk about unity, this is not something new that came along in the New Testament. Like, well, now we've got a church and everybody needs to kind of sort of get in line. And No, this has been the, the, the thing from the beginning. The people of God were, were gathered and conducted themselves in worship and in life according to prescriptions. That, that's, that's always how it's been. So in, in this passage, the standards are soon to become a more settled matter, we could say what we would call doctrinal practical or doctrinal and practical standards of the old covenant assembly were going to be established and more um, easily observed i guess you could you could put it in those terms because once it's established in jerusalem well there's the place that's where we go it's not a, it's not a moving uh, tabernacle anymore and remember it was a great sin when when places of worship were set up in other places Bethel and Dan that was a great sin. You don't do that. Why? Well this right here. We're, we don't everybody doesn't just get to decide where they want to worship or how they want to worship. God sets the prescriptions. So what does this teach us about alternatives to this teaching about unity? God clearly prohibits the opposite or the alternative. You shall not do according to all that we're doing here this day. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. He denounces the alternative. This came to my mind. Centrifugal force. If you fill up a cup with water with no lid and you spin it around fast enough, the water, because of centrifugal force, is pushed outside to the back of the cup and it won't spill. Right? Yeah. Centrifugal force. Outward. Outward. Then there's centripetal force, which is force internal, inward, coming towards the center. This type of unity that we're talking about is, is centripetal. It's forcing us inward towards a hub that we're calling doctrine and practice, the revelation of God's Word. The people of God are forced inward, not outward. The spokes of the wheel, they, they all start at the same point, but they all go outward and eventually they could go into... I guess in theory, infinitude apart from each other. That, that's not what we're talking about. That would be the idea of every man doing whatever's right in his own eyes. I get to pick, I'm going this way and I'm going this way and that's all fine. What, what, what Moses is teaching and what we're, we're, I'm trying to, to bring forth is that whenever we come into the, the, the community of God's people, all of a sudden we're drawn inward toward what God has revealed. God denounces this idea of everybody just doing whatever's right in His own eyes. Actions, to go back to that definition or that explanation, actions performed according to a man's own judgment are forbidden. That, that's not how we do things. That's not how it works. The judgment of the individual 
is not the final standard. That's not how it works. God's Word is the final standard. Individual decisions are not the determiner of right and wrong. And that is a great relief. Boy, does that not take the pressure off of us? I don't, I don't have to come up with what's right and wrong. Whew, I just got to do what he says. To put it another way, because you say, well, in our house we believe this. Well, that doesn't make it right, just because you believe it. Well, we've just decided that, that for, for our family, this is the way we do it. Well, that doesn't make... You can decide that and still be living in sin. Just because you determine that, that doesn't make it right. A man's, to use the language here, a man's own eyes, the way he sees and decides, that, that's not law. That's not the way it works, right? Now, there, there does, I think, lay an obligation on us all to have these, these moments where we, we close with or give ourselves over to what is right and true. And we can and should have those Joshua moments where we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But when Joshua said that, that didn't, in, in his decision to do that, that wasn't making serving the Lord right. Serving the Lord was already revealed to be the right. And he was saying, we're going along with the right. We're submitting ourselves to the revelation of God. Not determining what it is just because this is the way we see it in our eyes. You see, there's a difference there. God's Word sets the standards. God tells us what to believe and how to live. So the alternative to unity, in this case, is the personal self-determination of the individual, making our judgment or our practice the standard rather than God's Word. And what we see from this passage is that such thinking is prohibited. Again, the people of God don't live that way. Why? Because we are the people of God. We're, we're under Him. We come for prescriptions. We come for instruction. We know, hopefully we know, by nature we don't have the answers. We can't figure it out. So we come to be told and to be taught and to instruct it. And that was true for Israel. That is true for us. To come into the, the community of the people of God. For, for Ruth to say to Naomi, uh, your people will be my people and your God my God. She's saying, I'm coming into the whole thing. To take the people is to take the God. To take the God is to take the people. To take them both is to take the whole way of life. Ruth, Ruth didn't come into to Bethlehem and say, whenever she was given instruction from Naomi about how to go about the business with Boaz, she didn't say, well, that's not how we do it in Moab. In Moab, we do it completely different. We decorate our hair up and we paint our faces and that, that's how we do it as Moabite. No, she knew, I'm a part of this people now. This is how they live. She submitted to that. that that's always been the case. The second passage... That's Deuteronomy. The second passage is Isaiah 53. <coughs> Isaiah 53, we descend down into the, the dark dungeon known as the torture chamber of the rabbis. The Jews have a hard time with this portion of Scripture. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We read this in family worship last night, and, and as I began to ask questions, answers were in terms of Jesus Christ. I, I never said his name. Jesus Christ dying for the sins of his people. And then it clicked. I forget which one it was. It clicked in their minds. Wait a second. This is, this is way before the part where we get to Jesus dying on the cross. I said, exactly. How does that work? Well, it's a prophecy. This, these things were declared from of old. But it's, it, when, when we read this with opened eyes, there's no question as to who we're talking about. We, we know what this is about. It's a prophecy concerning the coming of Christ and how exactly it will be that He reconciles the two seemingly contradicting statements in God's self-revelation. Because God said that He would forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but He also said that He would by no means clear the guilty. How can both of those be true? Well, this song is one of the places that explains the answer. Iniquity, transgression, and sin are going to be laid on Yahweh's servant... And He's going to be crushed for them. And because He has endured that and because He bears our iniquities, He will then make many to be accounted righteous. He's imputed with our sin. We are imputed with His righteousness. That's how it works. Now what's being denounced in this verse, verse 6? We see the denunciation of our, like sheep, having gone astray, having turned everyone to His own way. The last text was dealing with our individual autonomy in worship. And, and just as I read Deuteronomy 12, I found myself really having a hard time understanding if what was being announced was actually a sinful thing. I'm inclined to think that it, that it wasn't that they were in sin. He was just saying things are about to change. Here, though, it's dealing with our individual autonomy in rebellion against God. Each man going his own way, his own way, your way, my way, all of our own ways are all over here. And then over here, God's way. That's the idea. Everybody naturally is going all their own ways as opposed to God's way. In rebellion, each man chooses, sort of, in a sense, his own personal pathway of rebellion, as it were. The broad way leading to destruction is wide and it allows all of us to spread out and run according to our own particular lust. And we're so prideful and arrogant that we, in, in, in our small view, we think that we're running our own thing and we're going our own way and nobody's going to catch us. But if you could zoom out and see it the way God sees it, this broad way where we all think we're going in our own separate self-identifiable paths, it's all, it's all one direction, all destruction. But, but this is what we do. We, we have our own lusts and our own sins and we run according to our own inclinations. Albert Barnes comments, he says, We had all gone in the path which we chose. We were like sheep which have no shepherd and which wander where they please with no one to collect, defend, or guide them. One would wander in one direction and another in another and, of course, solitary and unprotected. That's the picture here. We just... You can imagine sheep. They might not be running very fast, but they just sort of meander off with no guidance, no, no gathering. Now, how does this apply to unity? Well, as we've seen, there, there are two ways. The unity 
that we aim for, again, is one of doctrinal and practical harmony that is according to the Word of God. God's way must trump our way. Wherever this unity exists, the people of God, individually and corporately, abandon their own program and all submit collectively to God. But as we also saw in Acts chapter 2 and other places, the saving work of God, when He creates us anew by His Holy Spirit, He gives His Spirit to abide within us, that work reorients our thinking so that we go from self-centered, running our own way, to others-oriented and God-centered coming toward Him and toward one another. So that rather than go our own way, we gather into the community of the saints under the Word of God. There's a... I thought of this contrast this week. Rather than ask, this is our, our natural question, am I my brother's keeper? Rather than ask that, we come under the saving power of God and we say, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I'll give up whatever I have to for his good. Whereas Cain, what does he have to do with me? That which is being denounced in this passage is the very fruit of our fall into sin. Adam and Eve hid from each other. Cain slew his brother. He went off on his own. He built a city for his own name and his own posterity. But the people of God gathered under the name of Yahweh to worship Him and not themselves. Sin causes us to run away from each other and away from God. The saving power of God causes us to run to God and thus we are all running toward one another and we... We gather that way. Now what does this teach us about the opposite of unity described here? Every man turning to his own way. Rebellion against God. Well, we, we see not only that God repudiates that pathway, but we see the intensity with which He repudiates it. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. In other words, it was for this rebellion that our Lord was slain. Among the many millions of our own sins which were laid upon the Lord Jesus, we find this sin of turning inward toward ourselves and turning to our own ways and even considering our own interests above the interests of others. This is one of those sins that Christ suffered and died for. And we see in verse 5, it says, "...but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities." Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Everybody wants that work. If anybody who's heard about this and would profess to be a Christian, everybody wants to say, Ah, oh, yes, the death of Christ is for me. The blood of Christ is for me. The salvation procured by Christ, well, that's, that's for me. I want that. I, I subscribe to that. But we, we need to be careful about claiming the substitutionary death of Christ as described in this chapter as ours if it has not had any effect on the way that we view the people of God or our own submission to His commandments. In other words, you can't claim to be justified and not be sanctified. Claim the blood rescued you from sin but is not continuing to sanctify you and to make you righteous before God. God so opposed this type of fleeing from Him in our own way that He laid that sin upon His own Son and then He crushed Him for it. 
The next passage is Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6, verses 12 through 19. These sections go together. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The Proverbs are full of Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom. Many of them are observations that Solomon made as he studied what men have called the the book of humanity or the book of human nature. He watched men and he watched how sin manifested itself and what it led to. And he watched how godliness manifested itself and what it led to. And he wrote these observations down under the inspiration of the Spirit. Now what's being denounced in this passage, there are many things, but notice verse 14. Charles Bridges calls this the double stamp. Verse 14, describing a worthless person, a wicked man, he says he goes about continually sowing discord, throwing out seeds that that if they'll take root, they would grow into strife and contention. And then in verse 19, of the things the Lord hates, one who sows discord among brothers. It's been pointed out that in passages like this where there are groups of seven, the final one is sort of the climax of the the group. There's a progression. Number seven is the height. In in other words, of all the things that the Lord hates, at the top is one who sows discord among brothers. And how does this apply to unity? Well, I think you get it. One who sows discord, that, that's the absolute polar opposite of obtaining and maintaining unity, striving after harmony with brothers. This is basically as much as you can, or as much as one is able, to destroy unity. That's what this person's doing. God hates this one. What does this teach us? It's the son of Belial, or a worthless man who goes about scattering seeds that might potentially turn brother against brother or cause divisions and discord among the saints. God hates this one. It does not say God hates this activity. God hates this one, this person, this man himself who sows discord among brethren. Now what does that teach us about unity? God prizes it. He loves it. Listen to Charles Bridges. Let the self-willed separatist remember the double stamp upon him that soweth discord among brethren. 
If the heavenly dew descends upon the brethren that dwell together in unity, Psalm 133, we saw that last week, a withering blast will fall on those who, mistaking prejudice for principle, cause divisions for their own selfish ends. And he goes on to say, if we cannot attain to unity of opinion, perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment, at least let us cultivate unity of spirit. And then, he, there, there's a footnote to something that Richard Baxter said in his in an autobiography, which I'm assuming would have been written in his later years. And I thought this, when I read this this week, I said, well, that sounds similar to something that I said last week. Listen to what Baxter said. I'm much more sensible, sensible of the evil of schism and of the separating humor and of gathering parties and making several sects in the church than I was heretofore. For the effects have shown us more of the mischiefs. I am much more sensible how prone many young professors are to spiritual pride and self-conceitedness and unruliness and division and so prove the grief of their teachers and firebrands in the church. I am much more sensible than heretofore of the breadth and length and depth of the radical, universal, odious sin of selfishness and the excellency and necessity of self-denial and of a public mind and of loving our neighbor as ourselves. A public mind means a mind that is willing to think with the collective. And he's, he's not saying just go along with the world. He's, he's talking in the context of, of Christianity. He says, I, I've noticed as I've grown older and older, how often it is the case that, that younger men are lifted up with pride and, and they, there's just something about that that they have to get away from the consensus. Just because it's the consensus. Here's the consensus. Uh, I don't know. Have you ever thought about maybe this or maybe that? It's just something about that, that push. God hates him who sows discord. God loves unity and we have to guard against that. As, as I thought about this myself, but also as, a, as a, a young church, a church of young people. Listen, the old men have, have already stated it. They've already told us, listen, here's going to be your temptation. As a young people, pride, haughtiness, cage stage, that's what we call it. And just, just a, a desire to break out rather than saying, no, I'm, I'm going I'm to keep my nose down my hand to the plow and learn and be taught and, and submit and follow in the paths that have been laid, you see. The next passage is in the New Testament, Titus chapter 3. Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. 
We typically refer to Titus as a pastoral epistle. Paul's writing to Titus, instructing him, encouraging him on how to put what remained into order there on the island of Crete, appoint elders in the churches. What's being denounced here? A person who stirs up division. That phrase, stirs up division, the word is the word from which we get our term, heretic. A heretic. A divisive man or a factious man. Now how does this apply to unity? Well, again, if if unity is the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony, and unity requires all of the congregants to gather around, as it were, together, peering into God's Word together, that they all might learn the same truths together. Well, this person, he's stirring up division. He's the antithesis of all of that. This person's not interesting in submitting himself to the settled doctrine and practice set forth clearly in Scripture. He wants to wrangle. He wants to argue. He wants to dispute. His mind is always coming up with new ways to to maybe deviate from the truth. Maybe it's not quite as clear as it has always been. As we've seen, the new birth creates a spirit of humility and a desire to be taught and a childlike reception of the truth. But wherever there is the opposite of these, we have no confidence the person's a Christian. So what does Paul teach here about this alternative to unity? Well, this person, Paul says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. He gets two warnings and then don't give him any more of your attention. Ignore him. And remember, this is a pastoral concern. We see parallels in the way that Paul writes to Timothy. He's letting Titus know, Titus, it's not your job to sit and constantly argue and dispute over settled matters. You've got better things to do. Warn him once, warn him twice, and let him go. Paul describes this kind of person as warped and sinful, self-condemned. So how does God see this kind of person? Well, he's to be at best ignored, but if he's a member of the church, brought under church discipline and put away... Because he's warped, he's perverted, inside out, twisted and sinful, self-condemned. He's chosen his pathway. He's not willing to submit. He's already decided, I'm not going to submit. I'm just going to constantly think in a, in a way of, of alternative, a different way, and argue and debute, dispute and, and debate these things. And, and very often, you know, this is disguised as the pursuit of the truth. I just, I'm just trying to, to think through these things more deeply and really I want to get down deep and understand when really it's just an unwillingness to, to, to submit to the clear teaching of Scripture, what it says. This is the type of person I think that could be described as always learning, it seems, always learning but never able to arrive at the truth. Why? Because he's already determined, I'm the judge of the truth. I will determine what the truth is. Well, you can't bring any truth to a person like that. They've already decided that they will be the judge of truth. This type of person is, is Pope at his house. I'll decide. I'll discern. I'll, I'll pick it. I'll tell you. The, the next passage is Jude. Jude verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, they 
They said to you in the last time, they being the, the, the apostles, they said to you that in the last, the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these people who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So Jude's writing to the saints, as you know, uh, uh, urging them to contend for the faith that had been delivered to them, encouraging them to fight for the faith because he knows it will come under attack. It was under attack. It would continue to be under attack. And he denounces those who, is translated here, cause divisions. But this language is a little different than, than what we've seen. The idea here isn't that of sowing discord so much as it is self-separation. The idea here is to cause a group to split into opposing factions by separating yourself into your own, starting your own group. Very much like we see in 1 Corinthians. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm going to be over here, I'm going to be over here. And then you sort of force everybody to decide. Pick, pick your teams now. This person draws themselves out, marks themselves by a distinguishing belief from their brothers and sisters, and then they make the group choose and thus divide. Jude says these people had crept into the church. How does this apply to unity? Well, obviously, division, separation, these things are the opposite of unity. These are contrary notions. You can't pursue doctrinal and practical harmony and also live a life that you're constantly separating yourself and distinguishing yourself by your own doctrines and practices. Now what does this teach us about this alternative or this, this opposite of unity? Well, Jude describes such people as scoffers, following their own ungodly passions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. We saw last week from 1 John Love of the brethren is a mark of being born again. Here we see the opposite, the mark of the lost, the proof that they don't have the Spirit is that they're doing this. They're causing these divisions. They're separating themselves. True salvation draws men together and unites them through the Holy Spirit. And where that's lacking, where there is no drawing together, there's, there's no sign of salvation. And that truth is why our hearts ache for people that we know who profess to be Christians. Maybe they can talk the talk. They know some things. But they absent themselves from the church, the, the, the assembly of the saints. We have no ground to stand upon to affirm their profession. They, they don't show that they love the brethren. James would say, well, I hear what you're saying, but I would show you my faith by my works. Do what God has commanded. That's how we see that God has truly worked in you. These people are evidencing themselves to be devoid of the Spirit. The last two are found in Revelation chapter 2. I put these together because they're so similar. Verses 14 through 16 of Revelation 2. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Then... 
verses 20 to 23. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. And unless they repent of her works, and I, or unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Christ is addressing these two churches in Asia Minor in the first century, one in Pergamum, one in Thyatira. Now what does he denounce in Pergamum? Those who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they, they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. In other words, teaching that is drawing people away from what had already been clearly prescribed and or forbidden. In Thyatira, a woman, Jezebel, is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. In both of these churches, there were people who were spreading variations of old heresies. Both teachings had similar effects, and that was leading those in the church away from righteousness and to sin and wickedness, seducing the servants of Christ. He says, seducing my servants there in Thyatira. That's what Christ said. Now, how does this apply to unity? Well, the teaching or practice which draws people away from the teaching and practice of Scripture, what God has revealed, that, doesn't, that can't unify. That's the opposite of, of unity. And as I said early on, weeks ago, that type of unity, a lot of people in theory, in their minds, they have that kind of unity. We're all unified in the fact that none of us agree about anything. We all do our own thing. Or we, we, we don't elevate things like doctrine or practice. We don't get into the details and therefore we're unified. That's not what we're after. That's the opposite of what we're after. We're after something that is, it, it's like we're all playing tug of war and we're all losing. We're all just pulling ourselves closer inward toward each other around the truth as it's revealed in Scripture. These people were being drawn away. It's one thing to ignore the sanctification and, and growth of a brother or sister in Christ. Go all week and not pray for the sanctification of the saints here. That's one thing. It's another thing to carelessly put stumbling blocks in their path so that they, they stumble and trip in their faith. But it's a much more grave error to purposefully lead people away from the truth and into sin and idolatry. That was another thing that was punishable in the Old Covenant by death. Drawing people into idolatry, that person is put to death. What does this teach us about the alternative to unity? Well, these passages teach us that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, walks in the midst of His lampstands. He knows the hearts of all men. He's intimately acquainted with what's happening in His churches and He is personally invested in the purity and safety of His people. He is the Good Shepherd. 
He's near. He's watching. He's guarding. He's protecting. And so to lead His servants into sin or seduce Christ's servants, Christ takes that as a personal attack upon Him. He says in these, to these people, these churches, if there's no repentance, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. He doesn't put up with it. Again, rather than command the blessing, Christ says, I will come swift with judgment where this happens. And I wonder oftentimes how often this judgment looks like a church continuing on for years and years and years and years with no life, no growth, no spirit. I don't want that. If... If the way that God addresses the opposites or the alternatives to unity is any clue of how important unity is to Him, then I think what we've just seen in these few texts would lead us to conclude that He takes it seriously. It's a serious matter to Him. He forbids self-willed judgment in matters of revelation. He condemns our individualistic rebellion He hates those worthless men who sow discord. They're to be warned twice and then avoided because they're warped and sinful and self-condemned. They they don't have the Holy Spirit and Christ threatens swift punishment on a church where these things are happening and are tolerated. So then the subject of unity, summarize all of this, the subject of unity is situated in some of the most conspicuous places in the New Testament. Where it is addressed, the language leads us to conclude that it is of supreme importance. And whenever the opposite or the alternative is mentioned, this disunity, discord, individual autonomy, stumbling other brothers and sisters, when these things are mentioned, they come with strong denunciations. Therefore, that's why I say, obtaining and maintaining unity must be a priority. For us. It must be. Now, remember when we first started this particular section, I said there are four categories, four, four proofs. And the first one was the sheer number of references. How do, you, how do you know if something is important in God's Word? Well, one way is just to count references. Higher number, higher importance. Lower number, lower importance, etc. That, that, that don't stand on its own. That's not the only leg of the stool, but that is a good way to think or to study. Well, we've already looked at 21 passages directly. We have. I took out two or three for this week. But let's just, let me just read to you some others. Amos 3.3 Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Or can two walk together except they be agreed? Can there be any walking together unless we have first determined by what rules will we walk? Where will we meet? Where will we go? There has to be an agreement or you can't walk together. Acts 4.32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. I read Romans 15. 5-7, 5-7, to 7, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
Philippians 4.2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That's a passage on unity. Tell those two ladies who are arguing to, to cut it out and get along. Colossians 2.2, Paul's desire was that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. 1 Thessalonians 5.13, be at peace among yourselves. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It's a reason to thank God. James 2.1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't come together in the church and start dividing up into rich and poor, showing favoritism to one or the other. 1 Peter 3.8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 John 3.11, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And, and we could multiply passages like these over and over again. You know it. I came up with these just thinking, just flipping and looking. It was, it was not hard. I trust that you see the cumulative report. If we take into account what unity is, what we're aspiring after, this, this theme opens up in Scripture all over the place. If these are dependable criteria, number of references, naming the ones or including the ones we just read, nearly 40 just in our little study, the placement of significant insignificant context, the language used to promote unity, and the denunciation of its alternatives. We put all this together. We put all these legs together. We don't say, well, the jury's out. We're not really sure. It's, hard to, it's really hard to tell. No, we say the jury's in. The verdict is, is in. It's settled. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. And each of us as individuals, we have to aspire to this. I trust that, the, that God's Word holds your conscience. God's Word, not my Word. If you, if you, don't, if you don't agree, then go, go find it yourself. Or, or bring back the, the, uh, the opposing evidence. I think that God thinks it's important. So, <clears throat> if the Lord wills, Next week we'll begin to unpack how exactly we obtain and maintain. In other words, the application of all of this application. But let's pray that the Lord would give increase to these things. We read in John's Gospel the words of Christ. John chapter 6, beginning in verse forty. Seven, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Christ has given His flesh as life 
for the world. So as we break the bread together, we are reminded again of Christ's body broken, His human flesh torn for us. And we remember what He's done for us. Took flesh and blood that He might obey and suffer as a man. Why? Because men needed to be saved. Men like us needed to be saved. So as the elements are passed, turn your, your, your mind and your thought to the meditation of Christ and Him crucified. As well, remember Christ or Paul's warning. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The manna of the wilderness was miraculous bread. But it wasn't Christ. They ate and died. We who feed on Christ will live forever. Though we die, yet shall we live. That's where our faith lies. Not in physical bread. In Christ crucified for us. So consider these things and then we'll come to the table together.